Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of the CCRN podcast series. For those of you that are new, welcome to our series. So happy to have you here. And for those of you that have been to or have listened to other podcast episodes, I really appreciate you coming back for yet another episode. Now, today our focus is going to be on valvular heart disease. And so prior to getting into the content, I do have a few announcements to make. The first announcement has to do with my website, please head over to my website at khoppypresents.com and there you're able to subscribe to receive updates on the newest things coming coming your way as well as I currently have a basic rhythm analysis cheat sheet that you can get as a, a freebie, if you will, for heading over to my website and subscribing. So um, if you are so inclined, please do that. My website also has a list of all of the podcasts that I have to offer, as well as podcast episodes that will be coming your way. And last but not least, there is some contact information if you would like to get in touch with me in order to perhaps schedule a CCRN or a PCCN at your facility or perhaps for your AACN group. Another thing I'd like to make you aware of is if you head over to my Facebook page at Khoppy Presents, you will find the daily CCRN question challenge. It's been a lot of fun. We are in week five right now. And the way that it works is every day there is a CCRN question posted in the morning. And then later on in the evening, the answer is posted in the comment section. It's really been a lot of fun. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from people. And um, please join us if, if you have the opportunity to do that. Also, I am going to be publishing my online CCRN review course in September. And I'm anticipating, because I'm in the midst of recording it right now, I'm anticipating when all is said and done that that course will be a 24 uh, contact hour uh, course. So you can get 24 CEs or thereabouts for taking that course. As I said, I'm still in the midst of recording it. We'll be finishing up in the next few weeks and we'll offer that in September of 2021. So you can look forward to that then. 
So enough of the announcements, guys, and let's get on to valvular heart disease. And so let's start out with a brief definition. Well, what is it? It's an acquired or congenital disorder of the heart valves that results in either impedance to flow. So problems with forward flow or forward movement. So that would be stenosis or insufficiency, which is, we know it to be regurgitation that results in backward flow. So in this podcast episode, we're going to talk about some of the most common types of valve problems. And we're going to start out with mitral regurge. So what most commonly causes mitral regurge? Well, one of the things that comes up right away is whether the patient has had a history of rheumatic heart disease. That really seems to be a common thread whenever you talk about any of the various types of valvular heart disease. Other things can be trauma. Certainly it can be a traumatic thing. In the MI patient, it can be papillary muscle dysfunction or rupture of the papillary muscle off the endocardium, considering the fact that it's a muscle and you have an anterior and a posterior set of papillaries, that would suggest to you that if the patient presents with anterior or posterior MI, the papillary muscles may be involved as well. You can have the actual rupture of the papillary muscle off the endocardium, or you can have a tearing effect of the chordae tendinae off the papillary muscle. There might be a congenital malformation causing mitral regurge, might be mitral valve prolapse. What we see a lot, guys, is patients with left ventricular failure can have mitral regurge, not related to any damage of the mitral valve, But the fact that when the left ventricle becomes engorged with fluid, that fluid and pressure will actually cause the leaflets of the mitral valve to not be able to come together. Because when you think about the mitral valves, you think about the leaflets kind of being joined together by an annulus that surrounds them. When you think of an annulus, of course, you think about a ring. So you think about the ring and then you think about the leaflets kind of projecting out from the ring. So it stands to reason then if you have a big old dilated ventricle full of fluid, that amount of fluid and pressure is going to cause the ring to dilate. And as it does, it prevents the leaflets of the valve from being able to close normally. So indeed in the person with left ventricular failure, you could see that the patient develops a holosystolic or a pansystolic murmur to begin with when the patient comes in in florid heart failure. And then as we offload that left ventricle, we can hear the murmur getting softer and softer and softer until it goes away. So that's more of a a functional related um, murmur rather than structural because, um, you know, it's, it's simply there because the annulus of the ring was dilated based on left ventricular overload. Other things that can cause mitral regurge include hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Marfan syndrome. Uh, everybody thinks about Marfan syndrome as being, you know, the President Lincoln uh, disease. 
Also calcification of mitral valve leaflets. We see that uh, plenty of the time. Also things like scleroderma can cause mitral regurge and damage to valves. Or maybe the person has a prosthetic valve that now is not functioning correctly. So what we see then is the patient presents dyspneic, they're orthopnic, they have PND, they have cough and palpitations, they may present even with chest pain, but certainly they come in weak, they're fatigued, short of breath, and anxious. And so when we examine them, what we see is they're tachycardic, they're diaphoretic. If they're not getting adequate perfusion to their brain, they are confused. We can also see displacement of the PMI. Now remember, we've discussed this a couple of times, so we're just going to quickly review. The PMI is the point of maximal impulse or point of maximal intensity normally found at the fifth intercostal space left midclavicular line. So when the PMI is displaced downward and laterally, that tells you that the apex of the heart is displaced downward and laterally because that's what the PMI represents. It represents the apex of the heart hitting up against the chest wall should only be about a quarter, maybe a half dollar in size. It's something that you palpate and it should normally be found at the fifth intercostal space left midclavicular line. So if on the CCRN you read a question that said that you are performing a cardiac assessment on somebody and the PMI is palpated in the sixth intercostal space left anterior axillary line, you know that that's not normal. You know that that's not a normal place for the PMI. And so the first thing that hits your radar is the fact that the patient probably has a, a big, huge left ventricle, which is displacing that PMI. Along with a displacement in the PMI on our exam, we can hear crackles. We may hear an S3 or an S4 heart sound. Now, once again, as a review, S3 is produced when the ventricle receives the initial load of blood from the atria, and that ventricle is stiff, non-compliant, maybe it already is overloaded with fluid. And the vibratory sound that we hear, S3, is actually heard very early in diastole. It's a diastolic sound because it stands to reason, right? Because that's when the left ventricle fills. And so when the AV valves open up and you have that big volume of blood coming down to the ventricles, if the left ventricle is unable to handle that, you're going to hear the vibratory sensation of that in the form of an S3. However, I don't want you to think that it's only the left ventricle that can make an S3. Certainly a person could have either a right ventricular or a left ventricular S3. Now, S4, if you'll remember from previous episodes, we said that S4 is, again, a sound that you can hear related to um, ventricles that are non-compliant, 
but it is heard late in diastole, very late in diastole. And really it is associated with atrial kick. Because remember the last thing that happens with ventricular filling is that the atrial will kick that last bit up to 30% of ventricular filling. It'll kick it down from the atria into the ventricles. And so again, same kind of sequence. If you already have a ventricle that's non-compliant and you try to kick 30% more volume down into the ventricle, you are going to hear an extra sound. Now, again, you may hear a left ventricular or a right ventricular extra sound. The one thing that I also want to remind you guys of though, and I believe that on Facebook, I had a question on this one day. It really was kind of fun, but for the S4, if you are in atrial fib or your patient is in atrial fib, which many of patients with mitral valve problems are in atrial fib, you cannot have an S4. Because remember, the S4 heart sound is when the atria contract into a non-compliant ventricle. And the vibratory sensation that we hear produces an S4. So of course, in atrial fibrillation, the atria are not contracting. So you are not going to be hearing an S4. So now let's get back to our, our murmur here, the murmur of mitral regurge. It is holosystolic. So it is heard between S1 and S2. And if you'll remember from the cardiac assessment episode, we talked about the fact that if you're listening to somebody's heart and it sounds like a mess and you're not sure what to do with it, it sounds like a wash machine in the agitation cycle. You don't know your systolic from your diastolic. Take your fingers and put them on your patient's carotid because the sound that you hear as you're listening over the heart, the sound that you hear that correlates with the carotid upstroke or the carotid pulsation is systole. Okay. So if, for example, I'm hearing a murmur that sounds like stub, 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 stub. And I notice when I put my fingers over the patient's carotid and I'm feeling the carotid pulse, I know that, or I hear that Every time I feel the carotid pulse, when I'm listening at the same time with my stethoscope, I hear a murmur. That is a systolic murmur. It occurs between S1 and S2. The term holosystolic just basically means that you can hear it through the whole systole, the whole thing. One constant continuous sound. Sometimes you will also hear it referred to as a pan-systolic murmur. So either one, you know, it's like saying yellow jaundice. I think it's pretty much the same thing. Holosystolic, pan-systolic. Now it's high-pitched. So we know that the best way to pick up high-pitched tones is to use the diaphragm of your stethoscope, whereas the low-pitched sounds are best heard with the bell. So it's holosystolic. It's high pitched. It has a blowing quality to it and it can be best heard at the apex. Again, down by the apex, lower left sternal border and apex, 
That is the area in which you would best hear both the mitral and tricuspid valves. So for mitral regurge at the apex is a good place to be listening and it very commonly will radiate into the axilla. So that is our murmur of mitral regurge. So guys, what I'm going to do is I'm going to present the systolic murmurs first, and then I'm going to go on to present the diastolic murmurs. And then when all is said and done, we're going to talk about patient management. Okay. So we just got done with mitral regurge. So we are going to move on then to talking about aortic stenosis, which is another systolic murmur, aortic stenosis. Aortic stenosis is actually referred to as a um, systolic ejection murmur, aortic stenosis. And again, one of the common thread etiologies here is rheumatic heart disease. So rheumatic heart disease could be a calcified aortic valve. Some people are born with a bicuspid aortic valve. See, normally the aortic valve has three cusps, but we find out, and we typically find out in someone's later years that they were born with a bicuspid aortic valve that now becomes stenotic or it could, uh, it could be insufficient or regurgitant. There also could be coarctation of the aorta that causes aortic stenosis as well. So now we have somebody that presents with chest pain, typically upon exertion. And they also may, upon exertion, also feel lightheaded. Now they come in presenting very much like left ventricular failure. So they come in with dyspnea, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, and they are fatigued, weakness and fatigue, no matter what valve you're talking about here, people come in with weakness and fatigue. They just do. And along with that, typically dyspnea. These folks can also come in with palpitations and that's true of any type of valve disorder. Now let's talk about some of the um, signs and symptoms. What do we see from an examination standpoint? Well, we typically see a narrowed pulse pressure. And so you can actually see that. I mean, if you had an arterial line in place, you would actually see a very narrowed pulse pressure and um, you would see the PMI displaced laterally or just downward, a downward or a lateral displacement. So remember pulse pressure now, guys. You don't need an arterial line, obviously, to, to look at a narrow pulse pressure. You subtract the diastolic, diastolic from the systolic, and normally you should be somewhere around 40 to 60. And of course, what causes the pulse pressure to narrow is the problems with ejection. And what we would see going back to that arterial line thing, if we had an arterial line in place in somebody with aortic stenosis, what we see is the systolic component of the arterial line going up in kind of a sloppy manner. In other words, the systole doesn't abruptly go up. And then, of course, you know, go down from there, have the dichrotic notch and go down. If you have aortic stenosis, 
you're going to have this slurring of systole in your aortic pressure waveform. And you're not going to see this really nice, crisp closure of the aortic valve manifested as a dichrotic notch. So a couple of things to keep in mind. This person also can possibly have an S3 due to ventricular non-compliance, uh, left ventricular failure, crackles. And this ejection murmur is, is different from the last one we went over. Do you remember mitral regurge? We said mitral regurge is a blowing type murmur, whereas aortic stenosis is going to produce a very harsh murmur. It's described as a crescendo, decrescendo type murmur. And in some books, you'll you'll hear it described as a diamond-shaped murmur. If you think about a diamond, you know, crescendo, it's getting louder, decrescendo, it is getting softer and it forms a diamond shape. Now, obviously that crescendo effect is as that ventricle is trying to push that volume out against that very stenotic valve. And then the decrescendo sound, of course, is, you know, once we start ejection, the murmur isn't going to get as loud. It's going to decrescendo as the amount of pressure and volume coming out of that left ventricle decreases. It is loudest at the aortic area. And remember the aortic area is the second intercostal space, right sternal border, and it can radiate up to the neck. So think about it, the aortic valve and the pulmonic valve close at the same time. I mean, they, they open and close together, right? As a general rule. So the aortic area is found in the second intercostal space, right sternal border, whereas the pulmonic area is found in the second intercostal space, left sternal border. Both of them, of course, are at the base of the heart. They're not at the apex, they're at the base. And the way that you would identify whether it is a pulmonic valve stenosis murmur versus an aortic valve stenosis ejection murmur is to have the patient breathe in deeply and breathe out. And what you notice, guys, is any time you have a murmur that originates in a right-sided heart valve. So think about it. You know, what are your valves over on the right side of the heart? Your valves are the tricuspid valve and also the pulmonic. When you deeply inspire, that negative pressure increases venous return. And so for right-sided heart valves, the murmur will get louder on inspiration. And that's a real good way for you to separate a murmur that originates within a left-sided heart valve, which is mitral and aortic, versus a right-sided heart valve, which is tricuspid as well as pulmonic. So let's get back to our aortic stenosis. We said that it's a systolic diamond-shaped murmur. It's referred to as an ejection murmur. It's harsh. It has a crescendo, decrescendo type pattern, and it's loudest at that aortic area. It also can radiate up into the neck. It's best heard with the patient sitting up and leaning forward. Now that's kind of different from what we talked about just a moment ago when we talked about the murmur of mitral insufficiency, 
where that one is best heard with your patient either laying down or perhaps over on their left lateral side. This is better. The aortic stenosis murmur is best heard with the patient sitting up and leaning forward. So let's move onward then to our diastolic murmurs, the first one being mitral stenosis. And let's talk about some of the etiologies. First of all, again, first on the hit parade is going to come rheumatic heart disease. That's a big one. Another one, endocarditis, which is a episode that is going to be coming up soon. Our next episode's cardiomyopathy. And then after that, it's the inflammatory uh, cardiac uh, problems. Also, mitral stenosis can be congenital. There might be a tumor in the left atrium, atrial myxoma as an etiology, or there could be calcification of the annulus or the ring around the mitral valve. Now, this patient comes in with exertional dyspnea, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, and as usual with any valve defect or any valve problem, we're going to have fatigue. Now, this person can come in, I mean, they can come in with florid pulmonary edema along with hemoptysis. Um, they, they might come in with, um, and, and they wouldn't come in because of hoarseness, but rather it would be an objective finding, is that they can develop hoarseness because of compression of the left laryngeal nerve by a big old dilated left atrium or pulmonary artery. So um, it's also known as Ortner syndrome. So that, that may indeed be present. Now they have big old dilated left atria and they are kind of a sitting duck then for atrial fibrillation. That is a very common problem. So they can have signs and symptoms of uh, right ventricular failure because as blood does not get through that stenotic valve, we have back up into the lungs, putting a bigger workload over on that right side. Definitely the patient's going to come in with pulmonary hypertension. So this might be the type of person where if you float a swan, let's say into somebody, which, you know, we don't use swans all that much anymore, but on the exam, there's plenty of them. If you put a swan in somebody like this, what you would find is that uh, you have high pulmonary pressures and because of the, the mitral valve stenosis, the wedge pressure and the pulmonary artery diastolic pressure, they do not correlate well at all with left ventricular filling. All they reflect is left atrial filling. And so the left atrium might be bulging and full of fluid, but that left ventricle might not have adequate fluid. So along with that, you might have somebody that's hypotensive. Now, um, another thing that we see in terms of patient presentation is what's called uh, mitral facies, which is a plum colored kind of uh, flush where, I mean, they, they kind of remind you a little bit of, you know, your blue bloaters, your chronic CO2 retainers, because what happens with these folks is that when cardiac output is low and the pulmonary hypertension is severe, 
the patients wind up having cutaneous vasodilation and you see it really in the face and that's related to chronic chronic hypoxemia, which is something you would also see in the blue bloater type of um, COPD patient. Now this is a diastolic murmur. We're going to hear the murmur when blood is attempting to get from the left atrium to the left ventricle. We can hear an opening snap. Now again, a, a diastolic murmur is going to be heard between S2 and S1. So we would hear with an opening snap. Now what we see is, I like to call it a bow tie murmur. Just if you imagine a, a bow, we have the opening snap and the first half of the bow goes from loud crescendo to decrescendo. Well, that's where the AV valves try to open and you have a bad stenotic mitral valve. And so when that valve is confronted with flow, you hear the murmur very loud. And then as the atria squeeze to try and squeeze that blood through, it gets louder once again. So it goes decrescendo and then crescendo. I say it looks kind of like a, a bow tie, if you ask me. And then, of course, it's preceded by the opening snap. And the opening snap, of course, is related to that stenotic uh, mitral valve that is attempting to open. Our final valve defect today is aortic regurge. And it also is a diastolic murmur. And so it's a time in which the aortic valve is not able to close properly, allowing blood to regurge from the aorta back into the left ventricle. So in terms of etiologies, we have some of the same things coming up again, and that is rheumatic heart disease, calcification, that bicuspid aortic valve, which we said is a congenital issue, endocarditis, Marfan syndrome, hypertension, um, connective tissue disorders such as lupus, perhaps aortic dissection and trauma, all of them potential etiologies for aortic regurge. Now, when these patients come in, again, fatigue is a typical presentation for any of the valve problems. These folks come in with dyspnea, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, which really has been a common thread throughout. Exertional chest pain, syncope, cough, palpitations. Patients oftentimes are in atrial fib or have ventricular dysrhythmias as well. They have what's called Musset's sign, which is a nodding of the head with each systole and a very widened pulse pressure. And this is sometimes referred to as a water hammer pulse. Their PMI is displaced downward and laterally. And we find that, you know, in terms of blood pressure, the popliteal blood pressure is at least 40 millimeters of mercury or more greater when compared to a brachial blood pressure. They also have signs and symptoms of left-sided heart failure. So again, as I said, this murmur is diastolic 
It's high pitched. So using the diaphragm of the stethoscope would be a good thing. High pitch blowing and it's decrescendo. So that means that the murmur is going to get softer. So we hear the S2 along with the murmur and that murmur gets softer. Now, uh, it is heard very generally, uh, loudest at the base of the heart, but it really can radiate all the way to the apex and it can be associated with a thrill. And I guess I should take a moment and just explain this thrill business. When we talk about a palpable thrill, that's where you can feel over the area where you hear the murmur the best. When there's a palpable thrill, which sound, I mean, it kind of feels like a cat is purring beneath your fingertips. When you have a palpable thrill, that means that your patient's heart murmur is at least a grade four or above, a grade four or above. And there are, you know, six, six grades of murmur. So four, five, and six all have a palpable thrill. So you know if you have a palpable thrill that your patient has a, a high-grade heart murmur. So we've been over four of the major types of uh, valve diseases and dysfunctions. So we talked about the systolic group that is mitral regurge and aortic stenosis. And we just completed the diastolic group, which is mitral stenosis and aortic regurgitation. So now we're going to talk about management of valvular heart disease. And the first would be, of course, decreasing myocardial oxygen consumption. So using oxygen as needed, um, decreasing fluid, so sodium restricted intake, anxiolytics as needed. And the patient's really treated like or cared for like a patient with heart failure because that's what they have. So the use of ACEs and ARBs and beta blockers, um, vasodilators as a general rule can be used, but they're pretty much avoided in patients with severe aortic stenosis because it can really compromise cardiac output. Diuretics, the same thing. Anytime you offload that left ventricle in aortic stenosis, uh, you can wind up causing a drop in cardiac output. So even cautious use of, of diuretics is really important. Inotropes, well, uh, inotropes can be helpful. Um, sometimes if patients have atrial dysrhythmia, supraventricular tachycardias, uh, digitalis can be employed because it can be used for not only its inotropic effects, but also its antiarrhythmic effects. As we said, atrial fibrillation is very common. So antiarrhythmics for atrial fib patient may have AV blocks, which may warrant a pacemaker. We have to monitor them really closely for embolic events. So you could have an embolic event coming from a bad valve. One of the things that always comes to mind for me is the person that uses injectable drugs that comes in with an endocarditis and is growing vegetations on the leaflets of their valves that can uh, serve as uh, an embolic focus 
for um, a pretty catastrophic event. We also want to make sure that the patient is covered with prophylactic antibiotics before any invasive procedure, including dentistry, in order to prevent endocarditis. There are some surgical interventions, of course. Uh, We may need to replace the valve. We may employ valvuloplasty, where we try to um, use a balloon in order to open a a valve. Um, Maybe the patient needs to have um, a mitral commissurotomy where we go in and try and separate the valve leaflet, leaflets. Uh, TAVR procedure is really becoming more common now for the aortic valve, which is transcatheter aortic valve replacement. So that pretty much sums up, guys, our um, episode on valvular heart disease. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll be back with for another episode. Episode 18 will be cardiomyopathy. Just a reminder to head over to my website, khoppypresents.com and subscribe. Also head over to my Facebook page at khoppypresents where you can be challenged with a CCRN question of the day. And then last but not least, stay tuned for my online CCRN review course for 24 continuing education hours, um, which is coming up in September. And as always, if you'd like me to come to your hospital or speak for your AACN group, please head over to my website. All my contact information is there in order for you to get in touch with me. I hope you guys have a blessed day and I look forward to having you join me in a podcast soon. Take care. Bye-bye.